In Acts chapter 13, we see a moment in history that creates a movement globally that would go on and really change the world. And I'm not trying to be overdramatic here. I'm just stating what we know from world history. And because of this one moment, because of this one decision that was made by this one local church in Acts chapter 13, we see that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it goes out first to areas like Asia, Greece, northern Africa, basically the Roman world in the first century. And 300 years later, we see that the Roman Empire becomes a Christian nation. That it becomes the primary religion of the, one of the most strongest nations that we have seen in history. And after 2,000 years, pretty much in every corner there is a church. Pretty much in every nation we have missionaries who are doing the work of God's kingdom. The gospel has reached the world. And so this global movement, we see that it begins with Acts chapter 13 because up to this point, there wasn't a church in the New Testament that sent out missionaries intentionally. I mean, there were people who spontaneously went on these trips personally and met people uh, and shared the gospel. We saw with, with um, Peter, with Cornelius, right? He spontaneously heard uh, something from the Holy Spirit and he was able to share the gospel. We also see that people, they moved out from Jerusalem because of persecution, because they were kicked out basically, because a persecution arose after Stephen was stoned. And so they moved out and some went to Samaria, some went to Judea, some went all the way to Cyprus or Cyrene areas where there are Gentiles, and they end up living, um, living out their faith, and they shared the gospel there, and many Gentiles came to know Jesus. So, so far, they are, we see people uh, that went cross-culturally, we see people go from one place to another and share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, but we have not seen a church intentionally send out missionaries for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God. It's the first case of foreign missions, in a sense. And so it's not an overstatement to say that this began a global movement of missions that would go on and pretty much make Christianity the primary religion of many countries. And as I was reading and studying this text for this week, uh, I don't know about you, but um, when I was reading this story, as, not just as a pastor, but as a Christian, I was thinking to myself, I, I want to be part of a church like this. You know, I want to be part of a church that is so passionate about missions that can alter the course of history. I mean, I love talking to fellow believers. I love having fellowship over a cup of coffee or having a good meal with brothers and sisters in Christ. I, I love being able to share my burdens and my joys with people that I trust. That is awesome. But I also know that those things can happen in other places as well. We see in Acts chapter 13, God is moving in power in this church and through this church and when I was reading this, I kept asking myself, God, what is it going to take for a church to be like this? I mean, is it possible even today for a local church to make history, for a local church to, to change the history of an unreached people group, 
for people to be saved by the name of Jesus? Can we see the Holy Spirit move in power like we see in the book of Acts? And all these questions come, come, come to the surface when we read a passage like this. I mean, what was so special about this church? What was so special about these first missionaries? You know, was this just a one-time event in history? Or is this how the church is supposed to be? Is it possible for the church of God to be empowered by the Spirit of God to take the gospel of God for the glory of God to the nations and bring them to him? Is that possible? Or is that just a dream that we have? Is that something that's surreal in our lives? And so I want us to look at that today and really wrestle with this question. Is this possible or is this just a lesson in history that we should be thankful for? Because the more and more I read it, I realize that this is not just an incident that happened in history, but this is the pattern that God wants us to follow as a local church to be invested in global missions. And so I want us to see three things from today's text. The first thing is the unity of the church. The second thing is the work of the Spirit. And the third thing is the power of God. So the first thing is the unity of the church. Now there's a couple of things that we know about the church of Antioch based on chapter 11. We know that this is a fairly new church. The church started in Jerusalem after the Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down, but then there was a great persecution, so people moved out. And in the beginning, these Christians who were also Jewish, they didn't share the gospel with Gentiles. No, they kept it within themselves because they had no idea they were supposed to share it with Gentiles. So they went to different regions because they were persecuted, and you know, they shared the gospel with other fellow Jews. And along the process, some Gentiles end up hearing the gospel. And what we see in chapter 11 is people from Cyrene and Cyprus, they move to Antioch, which is the capital of Syria, and they start a church in this Gentile city in this pagan place. So we see that this church is fairly new. We also see that this church is planted in a city that mainly speaks Greek, which is basically English in our modern day. Everyone spoke Greek back in the days because the, you know, Alexander the Great, uh, what he has done, and so the, the language was, was widely used in, in the Mediterranean Sea and, and that region. So we see a church is fairly new, speaking Greek, and the congregation is mainly Gentiles, not Jewish. And the fourth thing that we see is this, when the church of Jerusalem, the apostle, when they hear that there's this kind of new church that is gathering in Antioch, uh, they send Barnabas. His name is the son of encourager. That, that's what Barnabas means. And he comes to this place and he sees these new believers, they are on fire for God, but they have no Old Testament background. They have no knowledge of the scriptures. And so Barnabas, he encourages these new Christians. And the Bible says on and on again, many were added on that day. Many Christians were added. In fact, the word Christian started with the church of Antioch. That's how devoted they were to God. And we also see in chapter 11, verse 26, that Barnabas, he's so excited about these new Christians that he recruits Paul, who has been kind of in his hometown for many years now. And he says, hey, we have this new church plan. You have to come. You have to teach. And for one year, this church is trained under the leadership, the teaching of Barnabas and Paul. 
And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 13. Now, maybe a couple of years have passed, and in verse 1, we are told that now at this church we have prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And so these people, the prophets, the teachers, I mean, these are offices that exist within the church. Uh, They are very similar, actually. Both offices, prophets, teachers, they declare the word of God. And so I think what the Bible is telling us is that at this church, at this local church, they had strong leaders who were preaching the word of God. They were teaching the word of God. And if you see this list of people, you notice the diversity that exists within the church. Barnabas, he is a Levite. He is a Jewish man. He was sent from Jerusalem. Simeon, who is called Niger, it means black or dark in Latin. You have that footnote underneath. And so most likely, this person had dark skin. You have Lucius from Cyrene, who for sure is from northern Africa because that's a city in northern Africa. And then you have Menaean, who is a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, who was the one who killed John the Baptist. But at the same time, this tells you that this guy was probably raised in a high social status. And then you have Saul, who used to be a persecutor of the church, who was going after Christians. So you have a Jewish man, a person who has relatively dark skin color. You have a guy from Northern Africa, And then you have this guy who came from a wealthy, good background, Menin. And then you have Saul, who was going after the church. That's your leadership right there. That's a very diverse group, right? I mean, I have no idea how they get along. I'm sure they don't like the same food. I'm sure they come from different backgrounds. Their understanding is different, different skin color, different social status. Everything is so different about the leadership. And this kind of reflects the nature of the church because we were told that mainly the members of this church were Gentiles. There were people who came to this city for business or different things. So the church itself was diverse. So it makes sense that the leadership is diverse. Yet we see unity within this diversity. And that unity comes from the word of God. Because these prophets, these teachers were devoted, committed to the teaching of God's word. And how do we know that? Well, in verse 2 it says, together this church was worshiping the Lord, fasting. And while they're doing that, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So even though this group is so diverse, they are united in God's word. They are praying together. They are fasting together. They are worshiping together. They are laying aside all their differences together. They are in all of God because they are worshiping. They were hungry for God, seeing that they were fasting, and they were dependent of God. They were praying consistently. They were seeking God and for, for his presence, for his direction. They were hungry for more of God. And I think this is possible only through the word of God. Because what other common denominator do, do these people have? Other than the teaching that was provided first through Paul and Barnabas and then through the leaders, the prophets and also the teachers. And this is why I think it's so important for us to treasure Uh, our Sunday services, our life groups, um, discipleships, any platform that we have where we can come together and study the Word of God together, it is so important that we commit to those things 
And the reason is not just because, of, because we want you to grow spiritually. I mean, obviously that is a priority. We want that to happen in your life. But outside of the word of God, we cannot get along. Outside of the word of God, it's really hard to love one another in here, if we can be honest. We all come from different backgrounds. We all come from different ideas, and we have different values, different political views, different uh, experiences in life. It is incredibly hard for people to come together and be united in such a way, unless we come together knowing that there's one God, and there's one Spirit, and there's one Lord, and we submit together to the Bible, His Word. And every single one of us, when we begin to deny ourselves and rather live according to God's word, that's when unity can be accomplished. It's not that we have to like the same food. It's not that we have to like the same music. But we have to treasure the word of God together. And so how are you treasuring the word of God? Not just in your personal life, but as part of this church are you hearing the same message? The reason why Pastor Danny is preaching every week, you know, passionately is because he wants to get everyone on the same page. You know, in the army, you can have soldiers who are talented, who are gifted, who can do so many things, but if there is no commander, if they are not on the same page when it comes to the battle plan, everyone's going to die. Our battle plan, our strategy is the word of God. And so we see in the church of Antioch that the church was united, but we have to notice that they were united in the word of God under the leadership of the preachers, of the pastors, of the prophets and the teachers. And I think together we need to seek God in the same way. So we see the unity of the church in the word of God. The second thing that we see is the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 2. It says, The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. By the way, uh, the name Saul, later on we see that it, um, and it says in verse, in, I think in verse 9, down, downward somewhere, it talks about how um, Saul's name also was Paul. And a lot of times we think uh, God changed Saul's name to Paul, but that's really not the case. I mean, we see that happen with Abraham, we see that happen with Sarah, but um, it seems like according to this verse in verse, verse 9, yes, uh, Paul was also called Saul. So Paul had two names. Saul was his Jewish name, Paul was from his kind of Roman name, uh, Paulus. And why would he do this? Well, so far he was with Jewish people. So he used his Jewish name. From this point on out, he uses his Greek name. So it makes sense when you go overseas. I personally have a Korean name. I have an English name. And when I go overseas, I prefer to use my English name because people can't pronounce my Korean name. <laughs> so, and it just makes a lot more sense. And when I say the name James, especially in, in Middle Eastern countries, immediately I can connect with them. They say James Bond. And so they like immediately kind of, con I, I go on this conversation and then, yeah, it's awesome. But that's just kind of a, a side note uh, there. But we see that the Holy Spirit is calling Barnabas and Saul here, who is Paul. And, and this is pretty incredible if you think about it. I mean, they're worshiping together, they're fasting together, they are praying together, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit speaks in such a way. 
And you might think this is normal, but I don't. I mean, have you heard the Holy Spirit speak in such a way that it's not just you who's getting the message, but everyone else in the room is getting the message at the same time? Have you experienced something like this, where the Holy Spirit is speaking so powerfully within the church that as we're worshiping, that everyone has the same idea? We need to send Paul and Barnabas. It's like we need to send Pastor Danny and Pastor Joe out. It's like, no. And, and so when I was reading this, I'm like, how does this happen? And it's not just here, but 50, more than 50 times in the book of Acts, you see how Luke, the author of the, the book, says the Holy Spirit spoke. And I'm like, how? Like, I wish I could be a fly on the wall of the Church of Antioch in the first century just to see how that happened, right? I mean, I mean was it that one prophet or one of the teachers got a word and then he shared the word and everyone kind of agreed? Or was it that everyone just all of a sudden had this kind of crazy idea in their head, we need to send Paul and Barnabas? Or was it that, you know, everyone saw the same picture on the wall? Was it that everyone had the same vision at the same time? Was it that there were check marks above Paul and Barnabas? What was it to the point that they can be so convicted to send out their two main leaders to this unknown mission. They have no idea where. They have no idea how. All they know is that they have to send Paul and Barnabas because the Holy Spirit has set them apart. It's pretty crazy. And so there's a lot of unknown in this passage and a lot of unknown in the book of Acts, but instead of concentrating on the unknown, I want us to concentrate on the known because if you are like me, I'm pretty sure you want to hear from the Spirit of God. I'm pretty sure there are times you prayed, Holy Spirit, speak to me. And it's been a struggle for you to hear what he's actually saying. And so from today's text and some other passages, I want to kind of briefly address this issue. So what do we know about the Holy Spirit? Let's not focus on what we don't know, but what do we know about the Holy Spirit? The first thing that we know is that the Holy Spirit does speak, even today. In Romans 8, 14, Paul says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. In other words, if you're not led by the Spirit, you're not a son of God. But if you're a son of God, then you are led by the Spirit, meaning that you hear from the Spirit. So there's no way that you can be a son of God and not have the Spirit of God dwelling in you and speaking to you. So that's out of the picture. The Holy Spirit still speaks to us today. This is not just something that's happening in the book of Acts, but the Holy Spirit does speak to us. Second thing that we see is that the Holy Spirit never speaks alone, but always speaks in line with God's word. The Holy Spirit always speaks in line of God's word. In Ephesians 6, 17, Paul actually says the sword of the Spirit, speaking of the armor of God, says that the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So he says the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. So the Spirit, the word, they work together. In John 16, verse 13, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. So the Holy Spirit does not come up with these creative ideas on his own, but he always speaks in light of God's word. In John 14, 26, Jesus also says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit's main job is to remind us of what Jesus spoke to us and who Jesus is, and which is the point of the entire Bible, right? 
And the last thing that we see is this. The Holy Spirit speaks when people seek him. The Holy Spirit speaks when people seek him. Even in this passage, we see that people are fasting. They are praying. They are worshiping. And as they are desperately seeking direction and the presence of God, the Holy Spirit speaks. So those are some things that we know about the Holy Spirit. Now, some people might say, well, that is not really helping me at all. But here's the deal. Let's say the Holy Spirit does speak to you, tells you something that you did not know before, maybe a direction in life, some, someone that you have to marry or a life choice that you have to make. How would you know that it's actually him? One clear way that you can know is that if you have a grip on God's word, then you would recognize his voice. God does not contradict himself. If one day you're praying for a boy or a girl, you know, whether or not you, know, you should marry this person, and clearly, based on scripture, you know that you shouldn't pursue that relationship, the Holy Spirit is not going to say, well, despite all what I said in the Bible, go marry him. No, the Holy Spirit is not going to tell you to walk in sin when it clearly says in God's word, live in holiness. No, this was a crazy message for the church of Antioch, but I think the reason why they were okay with this is because they understood in the Bible that missions was the heart of God from the very beginning. That from the very beginning, God had a heart to reach not, the, not just the Jews, but the entire world. You see that in Genesis 12, when God gives this promise to Abraham, I'll bless you so that you can be a blessing among the nations. When God tells Solomon to create this temple, he says, through this temple, this will be a house of prayer for the nations. The ultimate sign of God being a missionary is seen in Jesus Christ himself. God, who's way up there, comes down to us who are way down here. We don't deserve it. There's no reason for him to leave his throne and come into our messy, broken, despicable world. And he comes and he shares the good news to us. Missions has always been the heart of God, all throughout Scripture. And so when the people of Antioch were hearing this, although they probably were caught off guard, you know, probably some of them were thinking, man, but does it have to be Paul and Barnabas, right? Barnabas, he's the encourager. He's the one who kind of was with us from the very beginning. I mean, he also seems like he has a lot of money because in Acts 4, he's the one who sells his property so that he can support the local church. We also have Paul, who is so brilliant in his writings that he would end up writing over half of the New Testament. And for them, it's like, you know, yeah, give us our two, he's, God wants our two main leaders. And that's a big decision for the church. Like, how are we going to run our worship services? Who's going to preach? What about the discipleship classes? Everything tells, it points to the fact that this is not a good decision in a humanly way. But they're still okay with it because they see from Scripture that this does not contradict the heart of God. Actually, it's right in line with the heart of God for the nations. And so they say, okay, we'll send our best, the two that you want. We'll bless them. We prayed. We fast about this. As a church, we confirm that they are ready, more than able, to reach the lost because they, that's basically what they've been doing here at our church. They've been making disciples here. Why not go overseas and make disciples for the glory of God? And so you see that 
the more you grow in your knowledge and in your wisdom in, light, in, in God's word, it's easier for you to discern the Holy Spirit's voice in your life. Now, some people just tune out the Holy Spirit. It's like you have a radio on and you're trying to have a conversation, like so much noise in the background, and so it's so hard to understand the Holy Spirit. Some people, we just have to sit at a quiet place and seek God desperately. For some of us, we have to not just quiet down our background, but we have to quiet down our humanly understanding and try to make judgments for ourselves. Because the Holy Spirit, when he leads, it always requires faith. And do you know why? Because the Holy Spirit calls you to do do things of God. He calls you to go to places that you cannot go on your own, that people will think you're crazy. He calls you to do things that normal people would not do, to love your neighbors, to, to, to give generously for the cause of, of God's kingdom, to make sacrifices in your life for the sake of others. It's crazy. And that's exactly why it requires faith. Here we have a word from the Holy Spirit. The church hears it. The missionaries hear it. By the way, at this point, Paul already received this personal message before when he was called. God already told him that he was going to be a Gentile uh, missionary. And so for him, this is confirmation for the church. They see this is aligned with God's word, and so they're okay with it, although it is costly. And so they move on with this decision. And so we see that the church was unified in God's word. We see that the work of the Holy Spirit and the church submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit. And although the church sent out these missionaries, look at verse 4. It says that being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So although the church did the ceremony, it's actually the Holy Spirit that's leading them, that's calling them, that's making them partners to the work of God. And in the rest of the chapter, we don't have time to go over every detail, but we see the power of God God on and on again, despite there being opposition, despite being their persecution. I mean, the first place that they go to is Barnabas' hometown, Cyprus. And they meet this guy. He's kind of the, the governor, the, the main leader of the island. Cyprus was this island that was uh, west to Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas, they have an opportunity to speak to this main leader. And then while they're trying to speak to this proconsul, they have this guy named Bar-Jesus. It means son of Jesus. And by the way, the name Jesus was a very common name back then. It came, comes from the Old Testament name Joshua. So there's a lot of Jesuses back then. So it's funny that this magician, this false prophet, has the name Bar-Jesus, the son of Jesus, and he comes along, and the Bible says that he was so shrewd that he was trying to lead the proconsul, the leader of the island, kind of into a different direction while Paul and Barnabas was basically sharing the gospel to him. And so in verse 9, Paul, who is Saul, looks this guy in the eye. In verse 10, it says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, Full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? I mean, that's pretty strong language. I wish I could say that to someone. You son of the devil, right? <laughs> it's like the most godliest kind of curse that you can, you can do. And you might think, man, Paul is taking this way too far. But I don't think so. Because if you think about it, if there's anyone who can speak in such a way, it's, it's, it's Paul. What happens right after this is... Paul kind of puts a curse on this guy and he gets struck with blindness for a period of time. And you might think, man, that's out of, out of the ordinary. 
But think about what happened to Paul. The best thing that happened in his life was he was struck with blindness. And he was awakened by the word of God. And so even this act, I think, you know, it's pretty strong. Obviously, you know, I think Paul knew that this guy could take it, so he's kind of doing it in such a way, but he's trying to bring light and understanding to the fact that you think you are a good Jewish person who's honoring God, but, you know, I see that you are leading people astray, that you are a deceiver. You are actually not working on behalf of Jesus. You are working on behalf of the devil, and that's exactly why you are called the son of the devil. And so he kind of does this, and after that happens, he turns to the proconsular, the leader of the island. He's like, so where were we? And the counselor is like, yeah, no, I, I believe you. No, that day, the leader of the island came to know Jesus. So in the midst of opposition, you see God working in power. And there's countless stories that appear on and on. He goes to the next place, Antioch in, in Pisidia. And you know, Paul, he kind of gives this incredible sermon at the synagogue, when, where it, which is filled with just these Jewish people. And he basically says, well, you know the Old Testament, right? You know the history of Israel. Well, God is actually the author of history. And then he goes and moves into salvation history, saying that Jesus is actually the author of salvation. And you see all these Old Testament quotes. It's pointing to Jesus. And he kind of gives an invitation at the very end. He says, in Jesus Christ, there is freedom. In Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness. Believe in the gospel. And he gets a mixed response. Some people believe. Some people say, no way. Next day, Jewish leaders come. They try to persecute Paul and Barnabas. But still, Paul, he's defending his faith and seeing this unfold. There are these Gentiles who hear the gospel and many came to believe in Jesus. So in the midst of persecution, in the midst of opposition, you see that the word of God, the power of God is triumphant. And that's why we should have confidence when the Holy Spirit speaks to us and tells us to go to crazy places or do crazy things for the glory of God, for the sake of the gospel. It's okay with us. No, we're on board with it, not because we believe that it's a great idea in a humanly way, but because we trust in the one who's speaking to us. The unity of the church, the work of the Holy Spirit, the power of God, these things are coming together in Acts chapter 13. And let me ask you, what of these do you not have? This church spoke Greek, kind of saying that we speak English. We have a language that can be used anywhere in the world. We have resources to send out missionaries and to go out to the mission field. We have the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that led Jesus to the cross in order to save the world, the same Holy Spirit that led Paul and Barnabas and all the other missionaries in the book of Acts. That same Holy Spirit is working in our lives. We have the power of God. When we faithfully preach his gospel, there's going to be a mixed reaction. Some people are going to hate us. Some people are going to love us. But there are going to be people who are saved because of that message, because the word of God does have power. And the question is, what is your excuse? You know, I've been wrestling with this for a long time. Because, you know, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really comfortable. And for four years, you know, I made so many friends, people that I can trust. You know, I I earn enough to to live and and take care of my daily needs. This area is pretty cool. Like, when I was in Texas, I had to drive 40 minutes just to go to H-Mart. Now I can just walk to H-Mart in, like, 10 minutes. You know, it's super close. Everything is so convenient here. 
And I'm thinking, man, it would be great to raise my kids here. It would be great to kind of find a house and, and, and different places to settle. And then I encountered this passage. And the pastor didn't happen to give me this passage. And I'm wrestling with this, thinking, God, if you spoke to me today, would I go? And there's a million reasons why I wouldn't go. But then I think to myself, but then why would I go? There's only one reason. Because God tells me to go. That's it. If God tells me to go, I go. I give him a blank check. Well, some people might say, why in the world would you go to a place that has so much unknown? Why would you go to a place that has so much risk? Why would you go to a place where the cost seems too great? The answer really is God. If you can trust God with your eternal salvation, you can trust God in your present sufferings and trials. If God is going to lead you to heaven and his kingdom, he's going to lead you every step of the way. It, it might not be easy. It might not be the smoothest ride. You're going to have opposition. You're going to have persecution. In fact, the book of Acts confirms that. You might even lose your life. But look at the very end of the chapter. After all this takes place, it says in verse 48, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to the eternal life believed, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So we see this incredible picture of people rejoicing and, and, and glorifying in the word of God. So when you share the gospel, other people get to experience this incredible joy. But look at verse 52. After seeing that there was this persecution in 51, it says that Paul and Barnabas, they simply dust off their feet. In verse 52, it says, and the disciples were filled with joy and with Holy Spirit. Was there persecution? Absolutely. Was there opposition? Absolutely. Was there incredible joy that could not take anything away from them? Yes. Now, I'm not saying everyone has to go overseas, right? It's, it's only Paul and Barnabas who went from the church, and so some of you guys might be saying, whew, I'm glad that came at the very end, because I can't adopt to new culture. I can't eat these crazy food. Uh, this is not my calling. This is for someone else's calling, but notice that if you are part of a local church, you have a role in missions, whether you are sending a missionary, whether you are praying for a missionary, whether someday God calls you as a missionary for a season or maybe for a lifetime, you have a role in missions because missions is the ultimate mission that's given to the church. I mean, that's why Jesus left us here. If not, the moment we receive Jesus, why not take us into heaven? Jesus left his disciples in Acts 1 because he said, Okay, the Holy Spirit's going to come down. You are going to be a witness. When the Holy Spirit empowers you, you'll be a witness first in Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And by the way, I will return. And so don't worry about that part. Until then, you go and be a witness. That's exactly why God left the church on this earth. And the question is, are we moving towards that goal as a church today? Are we uniting in worship, in prayer, fasting, desperately seeking the presence and the direction of God as a church? Are we submitting to the work of the Holy Spirit, recognizing that mission is not something that can, be, that can happen by, based on a good strategy or a good program, but it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit? Do you recognize the power of God 
that can save lives. People who are blind can see. People who are lame can walk. People who are dead can come alive. That power resides in the local church. And the question is, what are we doing with our lives? Could it be that we're so distracted by the things of this world that we're too comfortable with the things of this world that we have lost sight in the ultimate mission that God has given to us and we're just living like civilians when God calls us to be soldiers for his kingdom. So at this time, I want us to just ask that simple question. How is God calling you to be part of the Great Commission? Because every Christian has a part to play when it comes to the salvation of those who are lost.